Okay, first things first, we're going to cover the Inferno today when we come back from spring break, and I hope that you get a chance to get away. Uh, but if you do get away, bring your books with you. You have reading to do. Yeah. Uh, I would suggest that uh, you finish off the remainder of Dante, the uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso for when you come back. Okay? So we'll do them both in one day. That being said, how many of you have read The Inferno? Okay, this is the part of uh, the Divine Comedy that's the most popular. For some reason, sin and sinners are really interesting, whereas it just becomes a little bit lacking in emotional uh, valence as we move further on. Uh, when we get up to heaven, I mean, it's <clears throat> extraordinary. And when we get to actually the presence of God through Beatrice, that's really amazing too. The problem is that um, even for one of the seven best poets in the world, as he is, modestly describes himself as a word for our sponsor. Uh, right? That's a small commercial for Dante and how great he is. You know? And the worst part is that he was right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's really irritating. <laughs> You're right about that. That's horrible. I mean, He's almost like Plato. He knew how good he was. Yeah, well, hold it. You can't be as good as some, at least some of the people we're reading and not know it. Right. So yeah, he... Uh, he announces, well, actually, he puts it in the mouth of pagan poets. Said, "What are you not? What are you doing out there? You know, you're one of the greatest poets in the world." He said, "Yeah, but I'm on my way to heaven. <laughs> Can't stay. You guys stay here. Look, you're lucky I put you here. I could have tossed you anywhere." <laughs> All right, so I gave you a break. All right. Uh, even weirder when we read the Purgatorio. Not only is Virgil out in the inferno, but um, Cato, the, the Roman Stoic, is wailing on everybody in, in purgatory. And he does a damn good job of it. Why? Because Stoics are detail-oriented. Right? <laughs> Stoics are really interested in their duty. Um, he doesn't know why he was taken out of the first circle of hell, apparently, but God has a job for him, and look, no Stoic is going to say no to Yahweh. <laughs> All right. You want me to wail on people? There's nobody better suited to that than me. I'm a stoic. <laughs> and if these people need a good flogging to keep climbing the mountain of uh, purgatory, well, I'm your man. All right. Now, there are so many weird um, heterodox things in here in the Divine Comedy. In some ways, it's amazing that this ever made it past the church censors. And actually... Um, a number of high-ranking church officials, when they first got this, said, well, the problem is that this has precious little to do with Christianity or Catholicism. In other words, um, how did Virgil um, get out of his box? In other words, who gave him the job of moving through hell? I don't know. And how did Cato get sent somewhere else, redeployed? Uh, I don't know. Uh, in heaven, we're going to find the odd Muslim, which is really weird. All right. Um, here in the first circle of hell, we have Saladin, who's not a poet, who's not a poet or a philosopher. He's a religious. Uh, he's a religious and political ruler. But he gets in the first circle too, along with Avicenna and Averroes, both of whom I think are genuinely great philosophers. But the key thing here, well, it's true actually. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a fair observation. Um, First circle of hell is loaded with Greeks and Romans and Muslims and uh, 
my sense is it probably has a fair number of uh, people who regard themselves as Christians. Right, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case at all. I mean, for example, I can't imagine, look, if, if Kierkegaard is in heaven, I don't want to go. <laughs> no, no, no. If he makes it in, I gotta be. I gotta be somewhere else. You know, because don't tell me that I have to share eternity with this. No, no, no. That's that's just not acceptable. So I think a Kierkegaard's in the first circle of heaven. God said, "Look, yeah, I can't figure out whether I'm supposed to punish you or not for being whatever it is you are. But I figure I'll toss you in here, and we'll see what happens. Maybe another poet will." come through and draft you. You know, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I've actually wrote down at some length, just as a kind of pleasant hobby of mine, um, what it would be like to take a a short journey through the first circle of hell. Who do you meet there and what are they doing? You see there, Plato walking the philosophical dog. (laughs) Because it knows what it knows and doesn't know what it doesn't know. The dog makes it into. I think dogs go to heaven. Maybe they go to the first circle of hell too. I don't know. All right, some dogs are wiser than people. That's true. That's a fact. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it really tells you something. All right. What do you think of the inferno? Come on, you're supposed to think something. Yeah. I'm always impressed by. I don't know if impressed is the right word. I amused in a not-so-pleasant way by how intensely involved Dante is in the politics of his day. Yeah, okay. Um, Late medieval Italy is a rat's nest of political intrigue, backstabbing, double-crossing, triple-crossing. I mean, uh, there's a reason why Machiavelli ends up the way that he does. Right, but he was born innocent as a baby, and then turned into Machiavelli. Um, he saw some stuff going on in politics, uh, particularly in Florence, where um, he was born. And Machiavelli ends up uh, in a, a bitter party dispute between the Blues and the Greens, and it turned uh, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. And uh, he ends up on the wrong side, gets captured, ends up being tortured for information, and. Uh, this for Machiavelli is a breakthrough. He said, this is a sign. The politics of failing. Why? Because I'm on the rack. <laughs> so the idea then is that you should avoid the rack. And the way you avoid the rack is by avoid being double-crossed or triple-crossed. Get them before they get you. Um, medieval Italian politics and early modern Italian politics is a mess. It's broken up into, into various city-states with their surrounding countryside. There are five or six of them. And they're always making war on each other. And because some of these states are weaker than others, the weak ones like to invite, invite in foreign help in the form of troops from the king of Spain or the king of France, right. who, bec- who become de facto both king-makers and pope-makers in Italian politics, all right? So uh, he is very involved in politics, and he he learns something about human nature, all right? Yeah? Um, I think it's, I think it was so funny how, how like calm the, the sinners feel in heaven, like when he approaches them, 
one guy in candy says why do you bother me like he has something better to do than talk to him he's getting tortured there and he's like why are you bothering me okay yeah something better also why did god give any of these people a break from being tortured right right i mean stop for an interview <laughs> what <laughs> i mean stop thinking about it um you're really pushing the envelope of uh how can i put it uh dubious credibility yeah the thing that really opened up the, the whole uh, comedia for me uh, was so, someone pointed out to me that the whole thing is a, a journey of internal transformation for right. Dante. Right. He, he starts out, you see it at the very beginning, he's, he's associated with the wolf of incontinence. Mm-hmm. And when he meets the, the people in the, in the pit of lust, he faints because, I, I think, because he sees that this, this is where I should be. Okay. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He can't quite deal with the fact that he deserves that punishment. Okay. Yeah. Um, he swoons at opportune times in this journey. <laughs> Note the journey motif. It's back. All right. Everybody's going somewhere. And you're ready for this. The city is like the man. And what that means is all of humanity is encapsulated in this journey from hell to purgatory to heaven. Everybody's there someplace. Pick your level. Right. And the universe is a giant hierarchy because that's the medieval view of the world. Everything has its own little niche appointed by God. But you get to choose your niche in the afterlife, depending on how you act here. But simultaneously, not only is it a, a trip through all of human history and all of human existence, it's also a trip internal. All right, And this internal trip is a journey through your own soul. Every evil that you encounter in the inferno, you could possibly do. Penance of every description, as a result, is possibly due from you in purgatory. And the place in which, in in the Paradiso, where you end up after you pay for your sins, um, is dependent upon, again, the kind of life that you choose. Right? Yeah. That's one thing I was kind of confused about is, in somewhere or another, I feel like we've all experienced some type of these sins. So Mm -hmm. is it more of a fact that that was their, like, main sin and it was just a habit of their personality at that point? Or... I don't know. I mean, things like theft and murder seem remarkably... Consistent. In other words, we do them, they did them. It doesn't yeah. seem very different to me. Yeah. So, how come, like, like all the sinners, it seems like they're just there for one sin, but they right. could the, be in you, there for all. When you go to hell, you get counted on your worst sin. What's the really bad thing you did? Right. Same sort of deal, apparently, when you go to heaven. The best of your actions are what determine whether you get up close to God or whether you have to sit in the bleachers. Now, fortunately, in heaven, everyone that's got the cheap seats, none of them rebel, none of them object to this because God is dishing out the seating arrangements. He can't be wrong. And besides, you're in heaven, so there's no discord there. So you just sit there saying, I belong in the bleachers. (laughs) Right, and that's where they stay. All right. Uh, There's a remarkable lack of dissension, or I guess it's not remarkable given that it's heaven. Okay, what else? Yeah. Um, I just have a question. So in this 
in one of the circles of God, I think it was the sixth one, with mm-hmm. heresy, he meets a pope. Yes. Um, but some, I was doing some reading, and some people, some scholars say that he meant to mention the Byzantine emperor. Is that He might valid? have. In other words, yeah. There's a, uh, there's, uh, I'm going to put it up, replication of names between certain popes and the current Byzantine emperor. Um, he doesn't like the Byzantine Emperor because none of the Italians like the Byzantine Empire because the Byzantine Empire is adding a surcharge. Remember, the Italian city-states, for the most part, live through trade. Um, for all of Max Weber's brilliance, um, he didn't understand that there was plenty of capitalism in late medieval Italian Catholic city-states. You don't have to work. You don't have to wait around for Protestantism to get the work ethic or to get capitalism. They both exist prior. Right. Now, because of that, because particularly, well, Florence and Rome, but also uh, Genoa, Venice, are trading centers, right? And the Byzantine Empire impedes that because they're taking a slice of the pie off the trade with the Muslims. So uh, Byzantium is not popular here. It's part of the reason why uh, Roman Catholicism won't go to the aid of Byzantium when they're besieged by the Turks. Turks are sitting there for seven years, right? And they're in the process of building the world's largest cannon. And they send out uh, more than once before the fall of Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire and the Byzantine Patriarch sent info to the church, to Rome saying, look, we'll rejoin Rome, we'll undo the schism, but come out and help us out. And the Romans were not willing to go, and the church was not willing to go. I know. Look, um, one of the things I object to in the contemporary world is the fact that everything, or a, a vast number of things, get blamed upon the church, which are really not the church's fault. And the reason why it pisses me off is because it obscures the things that really were the church's fault. <laughs> where they totally messed this up. <laughs> right? I mean, the church is the source of our misogyny. No, it's not. Idiot. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, the church bears a great deal of responsibility for the emergence of Protestantism. Yeah, that's true. That's a fact. Right? They could have fixed this 200 years earlier, they chose not to. Uh, 200 years is not a timely response to a crisis. <laughs> I know that the Holy Spirit has plenty of patience, but I don't. <laughs> all right, I want things taken care of. All right, So they seriously mucked up the reformation of glaring evils in the church in the 1300s, around the time this was written, all right, um, at the Councils of Pisa and Constance. They could have taken care of civility so you can't buy offices. They could have taken care of nepotism. They could have taken care of selling indulgence. None of them do. Why? Because it hits too close to home. So they solve the papacy crisis, but they don't address the other stuff that damn well needed to be addressed. Instead, they try to keep the lid on by uh, killing, imprisoning, and then killing uh, heretical would-be reformers like Huss and Wycliffe. But the problem is that that's the Roman response to a problem. And in the long run, that's not going to work because your repression is not going to be perfect. Thus, Luther. So look, uh, much of the Reformation is, you know, Luther is blameworthy for it. But not all of it. There's plenty of blame to go around when people mess up this badly and create a needless schism within Western Christianity. But what's done is done. All right? The church also, astonishingly, 
um, made a mess of the Galileo effect. <laughs> Don't tell me that this was a good idea. I know that there are all kinds of excuses, but there's really or there's all kinds of explanations, but there's really no excuse for this, right? They were in lockdown mode because of the rise of the Reformation. And new ideas are Protestantism. No, actually, <laughs> that's not the case. I mean, I just can't help you with that. Um, the behavior of the planet Jupiter has nothing to do with Luther, has nothing to do with Protestantism, has nothing to do with uh, schismatic Christianity. But the church finally lifted the ban on uh, Galileo in 1992. Once again, uh, this is not my idea of a timely response. I mean, it's not like we went 300 years where everybody said, I wonder if the Church of Galileo is right. No, there's really not much of a question there, I'm afraid. Uh, and they could have figured this out actually pretty quickly because the Church was heavily involved in astronomy. We had good scientists on the payroll, yeah. One thing I do appreciate, though, is that compared with some modern states like uh, Japan, who to this day deny their involvement in horrible evils, mm -hmm. the, the church decided in the 1900s to do a, a categorical look at all the things that have been wrong and apologize. That's a good thing. No, that's a very good thing. But in addition to apologies, we need that firm purpose of amendment. You've probably <laughs> heard about this. Right. Well, um, when I look at something like an ongoing pedophilia scandal that's older than I am, all right. I think that a firm purpose of amendment is very important. I want to see that. But I want to see results. And I don't want to see them in the year 2300. I want to see them now. <laughs> because what you're doing is squandering the moral witness of Christianity and undermining religion by providing safe haven for child abusers. I mean, there's, there, and there's no mitigating circumstance to um, sexually taking advantage of a child. I mean, if, if they were involved with adults, I would disapprove of it. I wouldn't condone it because they've taken vows of celibacy. But at least I would have some understanding of it. And look, all of you know what sexual desire is like, and you know that it can push you around, and people can fall to it. Um, with adults, it's one thing. With children, it's an abuse of trust that's not quite unforgivable, but damn close. All right? And I don't want to wait 200 years to fix this. Nine circle What? It's a nine circle of Yeah. Well, again, uh, those who are treacherous are, are the worst of the worst. And I have to think there's some truth in that, actually. Um, the journey through hell um, is a journey marked by an increasing intensity of sin. Right. And uh, it would be important to understand what a sin is. Sin is misplaced love. In other words, sin is love of the wrong things. What you're supposed to love is God. And if you love God, and he's the primary thing that you love through life, you end up going to the paradise, paradisio. But everybody that loves something other than God is misusing their love. Um, this is an interesting question, but it's something very much worth thinking about. What's the best thing that can happen to someone? That they should love the right things. Right. If you love something else, sex, money, heroin, 
you know, pick your poison. Um, what that means is that you will devote your actions, your life, and your intentions towards the thing that you love that isn't God. The further removed it is from God, the worse the transgression. Right. Okay, yeah? In a way, this is the, the insight at the bottom of philosophy, love of wisdom. Okay, yeah, provided uh, you don't personify God. But yeah, the form of the good is like there's a crystal of God. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to wonder why he separates like wrath and violence because in the circle where wrath is, aren't they fighting each other? Yeah. Um, anger, all right, uh, rage or the desire to hurt is a precursor but not as bad as actually killing somebody. Okay. And as we go down, we're going to encounter different kinds of sin. The first set, the kind of, uh, can I put the, uh, the better sections of hell, <laughs> are of concupiscence, lust, greed, gluttony, uh, what's the other one, avarice, right? uh, and wrath, the very bottom, I mean, the very bottom of these, you know, the, first, the first portion. Then below that, we're going to get heresy and violence. Note the numerology, it is not an accident that heresy ends up on the sixth level. Biblical numerology, six is the number of evil. They gotta go there. Okay. Violence turns out to have all kinds of uh, gradations with it, and it has to do with what you're being violent towards. And again, there's another gradation, a whole set of niches, you know, nested inside each other. Um, in some ways, uh, hell or actually the whole of the Divine Comedy, are like three matryoshka dolls, you know, they go inside one another, all right? Um, we go from the biggest and most general of the sins, lust, which is everybody's favorite. You lie. <laughs> I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> oh, no, not me. The hell you <laughs> he thinks the gentleman doth protest to <laughs> All right. Yeah, one of the... Uh, I won't get uh, digress here, but my point is um, we're going to start with lust. And the reason why lust is the best of the deadly sins is because human beings are made in God's image. When Paolo falls in love with Francesca and vice versa, they are departing from the love of God, but what they love is much more similar to God than, say, the avaricious or the treacherous or the angry. So, how does it start? We're in a dark wood. There's actually a technical term for this dark wood. It's called the dark night of the soul. Petrarch, a rough contemporary of Dante, uh, writes about it in a book called The Secretum. It's when you fall back on your spiritual resources and they're just not enough. We're in a dark wood. Sooner or later, everybody's life leads them to a dark wood, to some low point where they, where they have to do a gut check. They have to figure out who they are and what they are. In the, the opening line, it doesn't necessarily say midway through my life. It says midway through our life. That's right. That's some, right. Somewhere in the middle of all of our lives, we find ourselves in the middle of the dark Sooner place. or later, we're going to find ourselves in a very dark place. And we're going to 
not feel the presence of God, what do we do? Uh, well, swoon. Okay, but <laughs> um, what he does is have Virgil pop in and lead him through this and actually catch him at the various times that he swoons and moves him along. Uh, Virgil is often viewed as being natural human rationality or wisdom. Some truth in that. Also, can you see how it's handy when you're reading important books to know who the hell Virgil is and why? Remember, that was the template for Augustine, and now um, he's the guide. Remember, the, the Aeneid is the template for Augustine's confessions, and now he's the guide through hell, yeah. It's kind of astonishing the change that's happened since Augustine. It's been about a thousand years. Yeah. And in Augustine's day, Virgil was an opponent who he had to deal with mm -hmm. as an opponent to Christianity. But for John, well, Vir oh, Virgil, right, I'm sorry. Augustine for Virgil, right, was, yeah. Virgil was an opponent. Right. But Augustine couldn't help himself from drawing on him because he was so beautiful. But Don, for Dante, he's like, you can come into the Christian setting. We, we, can, we can use you. Yeah, I mean, join me and the other five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is the, the particular reason for Virgil um, died? I think that it's that Dante re regards him as one of the greatest poets that ever lived, and that this uh, poet is particularly useful because of the journey motif. We need somebody to get us through. You know? He's also the one who gave us the best uh, account of the descent into hell that has been given so far. Okay, yeah, right. We have that. He he does have the journey to the underworld. Oh right, and it can't it can't be Odysseus though, because he had the same. Could thing. be Odysseus, but Odysseus is a nasty piece of work because he's a lying ass. I was confused by that though. Yeah. Is he? So, Bert, Dante does not have access to Homer. He only knows of Odysseus. He's heard of Homer. Yeah, he's only he only knows of Odysseus from all the other authors. And interestingly, Homer is the only author who viewed Odysseus as a good guy. Everyone else saw him as this lying ass of me. Well, yeah, right. I mean. Uh, He's the guy that came up with the Trojan horse. And, of course, what that means is that they gain by stealth what they could not gain by violence. Okay. All right. So he is a treacherous individual. Okay. All right. All right. So we are in the dark night of the soul, and the advance is threatened by three animals, the lion, the leopard, and the wolf. These represent concupiscence, violence, and treachery. All right. Three kinds of sin. And outside of the gates of hell, God doesn't even let the, uh, how can I put it, the uh, neutrals in. In other words, if you're given a choice in life between obeying God and doing whatever it is that pops into your head, um, obeying God is not, is not uh, intermittent. All right? uh, you have to do it all the time. It demands your whole heart and soul. Those that never made a commitment to religion even though they had the opportunity, they get pushed around outside the, the walls of the city of Dis. All right, and they're buffeted by storms forever. Okay, we notice the gate. Abandon all hope, ye who enter. I've often thought of putting that at the, at the front of my syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> and letting you figure out what the literary reference is as time goes by. Yeah. It is a descent into hell. <laughs> it's, it's what can I say? <laughs> it is if you're doing it right. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's uh, paradise on the other side, though. So. Yeah, okay, well, uh, but none of us are guaranteed that. <laughs> <laughs> so keep reading. 
That being said, um, we come to the first circle of hell. Here, nobody gets tortured, has anything really awful done to them. Why? Because these are the men who live the life, I guess and women too, uh, who live the life of natural reason. And that's sufficient to keep you from doing, you know, damnable sins. The problem is, until you accept Jesus, you don't get any further than hell. All right? So this is God's justice. He says, look, I couldn't expect you to have accepted Jesus because, for example, you lived centuries before him. All right? And uh, you live by the light of natural reason, which means you're a tiny fragment of humanity. All right? But you guys have won the prize. You, know, you get to hang around together, talk with each other. Right? And uh, the only thing you lack is hope. That's actually a pretty powerful message. What's so funny, Paul? You're starting to worry me. They don't have hope because they had to abandon it before they had to turn the gate. Yeah, but they didn't have any choice about entering the gate. They got got kicked into it. That's actually a good point because the whole point for for Dante of all this is hope hope and love are the two central themes of the entire thing. Right, that's certainly true. Um, But you have to remember that, I mean, 99.9% 99.9% of all the people that God created prior to Jesus, so they're someplace else in hell. And God knew before he created them that they were going there, since they can't accept Jesus because Jesus doesn't exist. Yeah. This is one of the very interesting things to me about the Inferno's, all of the struggle with the idea of hell. Yeah. It seems unjust, it seems hard, and we all often try to lessen the idea of hell and maybe say there aren't that many people down there. But Dante, Dante's going to have none of that. He's going to say, no, it's real, and it's really rough. Okay, it is certainly real, it is certainly really rough. Um, the idea that there aren't that many people down there is strikes me as being a wholly inadequate response, because you don't want God actually tossing anybody who doesn't deserve to be there in there. And apparently, there are people there who had no chance, no, no alternative. Okay. And then how does one of the Muslim leaders end up in the Paradiso? I mean, look, there's a whole bunch of heterodox stuff here. In other words, sometimes people try and sell the idea that this is scholasticism rendered poetic. I reply, that is impossible. (laughs) Scholasticism is intrinsically not poetic. (laughs) There's nothing I can do with it. If you find Albertus Magnus poetic, you have some kind of problem. Duns Scotus is not poetic. No one has ever been transported the way they are with Plato by Albert the Great. I mean, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work. Yeah. That means that they, uh, Dante did read very carefully, especially the works of Aquinas. Of course he did, yeah. And, and a then, lot of that, uh, that theology makes its way into here, especially with the influence. Yeah, but a lot of all kinds of other weird stuff makes its way in. That Aquinas would say, what's a Muslim doing up there? And, shut up. <laughs> I'm in charge of this poem. <laughs> and... Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that's neither biblical nor Catholic. I mean, nor just completely imaginative. Right? And uh, we're on very, very thin ice here. Um, a, a number of high-ranking church officials, cardinals and archbishops, uh, when they first saw this, said, we got to ban this because uh, this is um, irreligious. I mean, 
whatever this is, it's not the religion of Catholicism. All right. On the other hand, a number of Italian cardinals really liked it, and they obstructed legislation right, um, and prevented the Divine Comedy from being destroyed. All right. Note that this is being written in, the, in vernacular Italian. It's not in Latin for scholars. Okay, And that's a big deal. That's a good sign of the waning of the Middle Ages when we move from Latin to vernacular. Dante is one of those bridges between the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. I mean, the hierarchical structure of the world, that's clearly medieval. On the other hand, all these Greeks and Romans that have been let loose to do stuff in his poem, uh, I don't know. That seems to me like a revival of the Greco-Roman culture that we call the Renaissance. characteristic of the Renaissance is vernacular literature, for example. Right. So there are, he's a kind of amphibian. He's between the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. All right. So we go to the first circle of hell. We see all these pagan philosophers philosophizing, I suppose. Okay. Next, section two, lust. Like I said, everybody's favorite. Okay. We see Paolo and Francesca. And what we get told is a really mournful story. Paolo and Francesca fell in love, but it was a forbidden love. And this moral transgression is a damnable transgression, but it's the best of the damnable transgressions. Yeah. And we read parts of this in my public school uh, education, and I remember all the my public school friends reading this, why are they in hell? Oh, I can explain that. Um, <laughs> Francesca is married to Paolo's brother. How do you think this is going to turn out? Okay. Um, Paolo's brother catches them, kills them both, which is how they end up in the second, in the second, in the first circle of hell, the second circle, first circle of punishment, second circle of hell, and then Paolo's brother, because he's a murderer, ends up in six. All right, but um, look, this is something that happens in human life. People develop sexual attractions for things that they should really leave alone. Come on, you've lived long enough to know that's certainly the case, yes. I just have a hypothetical question. Yeah. So if you paid somebody to kill somebody else, would you still end up in this? Oh, yeah, yeah, because you're the one who causes it. Um, in other words, it's not the, ju- uh, the head of the mafia, not just mafia hitmen, are murderers. Okay. Paolo and Francesca are reading a book. Right? It's one of the chivalric romances where Lancelot and Guinevere, who's married to King Arthur, um, also do something quite similar. All right. And uh, as Virgil, or rather Dante, puts it so delicately, um, they read up to that point as they were reading together. They closed the book. That day they read no more. Okay. In comes Paolo's brother, Francesca's husband, who is upset. He kills them both. 
All right. Well, they didn't have a chance to repent their sins. Down you go. But we've reserved a kind of nice area for you compared to the other stuff that people are going to get. Because as transgressions go, this is the best. Okay. Uh, from there, we go to gluttony, avarice, and wrath. All right. What we're doing is going through the seven deadly sins. All right. And the further down you go, the more the object of your love is improper. All right. Then we get <clears throat> into the city center of hell. All right. That's where we're going to have heresy and violence. Heresy because the sixth level is just the place for heresy. And seven, because there's so many different kinds of violence, is going to give us concentric rings within that. This is uh, hierarchy within hierarchy within hierarchy. So there's violence against your neighbor, which is murder, against yourself, which is suicide, against God, which is blasphemy, against nature, which is sodomy, and against art, which is usury. Now you may wonder, why are usury and counterfeiting against art? The medieval idea was that usury was an evil because money doesn't produce anything. So if I charge you 10% interest for a year's use of my million dollars, at the end of that, I expect a million one hundred thousand dollars. But as scholastics like St. Thomas say, this is impermissible theft because that million dollars didn't actually produce anything. So what you're doing is skimming off the cream from the art that was used in creating whatever they did with that million dollars. Okay, same sort of thing. Is is the deal? Um, the people that actually say built a building for a million dollars, right? Um, that belongs to them, right? Because they're the ones who did the work. The fact that they needed an advance in money to get, say, lumber and, and nails and stuff, um, that is not part of the productive process. Right. So what if you didn't charge them? If you, if you didn't charge them interest, that would be fine. That, that's what you need to do. But the problem is that that is a real primitive conception of economics. No one would lend money if they didn't get interest. Well, no, they do sometimes, but uh, it's only because out of the goodness of their heart. And you really can't count on that. But also, even more important, far more important, actually, is that interest, like all price, right, fluctuates. And what price is, is a signal. It's information to producers telling them whether they should produce more or produce less. Right? The price of your commodity goes up, produce more. If the price of your commodity goes down, produce less. Right? Well, no, that's why planned socialist economies don't work. Because they don't have the price mechanism. So they can't figure out how to, how to efficiently allocate capital. That's the problem. All right. The efficient allocation of capital requires that we devote that capital, that we give that capital to the activity that's going to produce the greatest return. Okay, The activity that's going to produce the greatest return is willing to pay the highest level of interest. Why? Well, because if you're making an 80% profit, paying 8% or 10% on the million dollars is no big deal. But if you don't have that, then the person with the million dollars has to figure out arbitrarily who they're going to lend this to for no interest. And what that means is that this money does not go 
to the most productive new endeavor. It goes to you know your brother-in-law, or you just keep it and say, I'm not taking any risk with my money at all. So the efficient allocation of capital is based upon the price of money. And the price of money is called the rate of interest. Okay? So medieval economics is real primitive. All right? And that's why uh, lending money at interest is actually not a moral evil. I mean, being extortionate towards it, you know, and threatening to break people's legs if they don't pay it back, that, that's immoral. A lot of modern credit card companies are... Uh, Pretty close to it. You know, you're, well, again, it's hard to know. We don't have one, again, we can't get all platonic through that. We, exactly 30.4%, <laughs> right? That doesn't work, all right? But we have this Aristotelian spectrum where things are moving in the direction of usury, mm -hmm. you know, when they're charging at 29%. Uh, all right. So... We now end up in the second level. We've got heresy and violence, and the violence is against all kinds of things, your neighbor, yourself, God, nature. Uh, the wood of the suicides is particularly moving, right, where you cut the trees and they bleed and stuff like that. It's a beautiful image. Um, and then we get into the final two sections. Note that threes and nines are going to be really important in this book. There's a lot of numerology. There are 100 cantos overall in the entire Commedia. Each of them gets 33, except the last one, which is when we end up with God, who turns out to be light. Uh, it's hard to, to uh, do a detailed portrait of God or a de detailed characterization of God, since um, language breaks down and we find out that it's light or that it's really glorious light. It's kind of divine if that explains anything at all. No. Uh, again, you're reaching with the, the limits of what language can do. All right. Fraud. There are lots of there are lots of frauds, and they also have a hierarchy like everything else here. Pimps, seducers, flatterers, simoniacs, those that bought church offices, sorcerers. This is something really medieval. Um, it's very clear that he believes that sorcerers are real, and for that matter, so does the Bible. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. They were witches, and he killed them. Okay. Remember that, uh, uh, is it Saul that goes to the witch of Endor and conjures, and conjures up uh, Samuel's ghost? Okay, conjuring up ghosts is unusual stuff. Um, I don't know, I, I, as far as I know, uh, that's one of the parts that most Christians just pass over in silence. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about Jephthah's daughter either. Right? But you know, who knows? This is a rat's nest. All right? So, uh, fraud, we get uh, sorcerers, but then at below that, those who uh, corrupt politics, hypocrites, thieves, fraudulent speech. And under fraudulent speech, we get such people as Ulysses and Mohammed. I was waiting to see when we were going to get Mohammed. I, I had suspected that he was going to be at the very pit of hell, but no, you can get worse than that. It's worse than fraudulent speech. Um, below this level of fraud is treachery. 
And that's as bad as it gets. All right. Treachery involves doing harm in return or where you should do good. We have a, a, an immediate and particular obligation to do good. So there are four levels of treachery. The first is Cain, or named after Cain. Why? You have obligations to your kin and to your family. You're not supposed to murder them. And this is a fact of natural law. It is not a question of positive law. Remember that Cain and kills Abel in Exodus, but they haven't gotten the fifth commandment yet, thou shalt not kill. Because, or he, Cain kills Abel in Genesis, but the next book, Exodus, is where we get the Ten Commandments. But Cain still gets that mark of Cain and is morally guilty because he's supposed to know that he's not supposed to kill his brother. All right? Okay. So this is an unnatural kind of malice. All right. Antinor. He he's a Greek that betrayed his country. So betraying your country is even worse than betraying your family. I don't know. That's a kind of that's dicey too. I don't know. Below that, Telemaica, based upon Telemy, he's in the first book of Maccabees, right in the Bible. Uh, Judas Maccabeus and his is. Ptolemy's uh, father-in-law. He has Judas, Judas Maccabeus and Judas's sons come for a dinner, and he poisons them all. Yeah, um, you're not supposed to do that. No, this is an offense against Xenia. This is an offense against the rules of hospitality, which were established many thousands of years ago. Um, that you're supposed to protect rather than kill your guests. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's interesting that that's worse, that country is worse than kin, but guests is worse than country. Right, because it's something that this is an even more foundational kind of transgression. And then the very bottom of hell, though this is named after Judas, and this is contains those who were paid good with evil. In other words, those who harmed their own benefactor. And yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be, in a way, the ultimate possible evil. All right? Ret I mean, returning good for good and evil for evil is a kind of natural human impulse. Returning good for evil is a Christian impulse. Returning evil for good is the inverse of Christianity, yeah. And the, um, Jordan Peterson, who's a figure I really appreciate. Yeah, I like him too. Points out, he, he thinks that Dante got it absolutely right when he said the treachery is at the bottom, because... Yeah. It, not just on the on the side of the treacherous, but people who are betrayed. Yeah. It absolutely rips the rug out from their whole world. That's right. And it, it's the worst thing that can happen to you as a result of betrayal. And it is the last thing in the world that you would expect because you have to be really twisted to think, hmm, someone that's done nothing but good to me and been kind to me my whole life, I think I'll betray them and cause their downfall. Well, what can we say about that? There's really no extenuating circumstance here, you know? Could you argue that Caesar did, did good for them his whole life, or was he more looking out for his own Oh, okay. You could argue that with Caesar. It's a particular case with Brutus. All right. Brutus is one of the guys, along with Judas Iscariot, 
that ends up in the bottom of hell. He being eaten by those three heads of Satan. Okay. Caesar was an ambitious politician who was in the process of, <clears throat> in practice, ending the Roman Republic and creating the Roman Empire. Caesar is a synonym for emperor. Okay. Brutus was a Roman politician who was, look, who was interested in the greater glory of Rome, but also interested in political morality. And he, like other Roman patricians, had an interest in keeping the status quo. All right? uh, the Republic is maybe in bad shape, which it was, because it had grown too big to actually manage the, what was a de facto empire. But also, um, in the civil wars leading up prior to the murder of Caesar, um, Judas and, or rather, uh, Brutus and Caesar had been on different sides. Brutus had been captured by Caesar's troops. And they brought him to Caesar's tent, and he said, look, take an oath of fidelity, and I'll spare your life. Right. You, you then, evil son of a bitch. You're actually going to kill me now because, for political reasons? I mean, you couldn't say to the cons Remember, there were a dozen conspirators. Eleven would have killed him, too. All right? Doesn't make any difference. So why did you say, you know what? I'm going to be the first to stab Caesar because, after all, he and I are so close. We're like brothers. He, gave, he actually gave me my life, for which I hold nothing except my dagger. Of the three people being chewed on, like Satan, it's, it's Judas, um, Brutus, and Cassius? Yeah. Okay. Same sort of thing, same sort of Roman. Uh, oh, Cassius was another one spared by Caesar. Okay, uh, it shows you that there's something to Stalin's idea of just kill them all. All right, because he knew that a politics is not an, a domain in which you can reasonably expect gratitude. Everything is, what have you done for me lately? You know? Yeah, uh, people don't forget past wrongs for recent fights. Funny you should mention that. Yes, yeah. I think Dante also uh, living in a politically disunified Italy, sort of, not not just sort of, but had a, a, a real. Uh, romantic view of the Roman Empire as this united thing that was centered in Caesar and Caesar was apparently... Well, it's a hell of a lot better than what we have now with all these city-states fighting one another and bringing in foreign armies, yeah. That's what Machiavelli is going to be so exercised about. Um, but it's not only people forgetting past benefits, um, it's... and uh, remembering current wrongs. Caesar hasn't done any wrong to Brutus. Um, you know, he's in the process of ending the Roman Republic, which ends anyway, another generation later. But Brutus says, no, political ideology is more important than personal connections of benevolence and uh, indebtedness. Yeah. I find it really interesting how Dante describes entering the final ring, or the final layer of hell. Um, he says, I did not die, nor did I stay alive. Like, imagine if you came when I became, if I was deprived of either state. Yeah, okay. Here's the deal. The bottom of hell is perfectly silent. It's also, strangely enough, really cold. 
Now that's strange because there's nothing in the Bible about hell being cold. Right? Actually, um, hell is described as cold in the Quran. Oh. That's why it was seen as treacherous, or that's why they thought his teachings are heretical, probably. You know, you got, I mean, the, there's no shortage of religiously dubious elements here. But the cold hell, that's actually Quranic. Who knows where he dredged that? You know? um, it kind of referenced that um, Satan was suffering down yeah. in hell. Is that the case? Oh, yeah, everybody's suffering. But the down in hell, it's frozen, so you can't move. You're immobile. But you're conscious. And if you've ever been cold... The idea of, say, being naked and frozen in a block of ice, all right, that kind of cold that you can't shiver, it goes right to the marrow, all right, and it really hurts, and there's nothing you can do about it. The reason why it's cold is because love is warm. Right. So it's dark, it's silent, it's static, except for three-headed Satan, who most of his body is locked up, but he's gnawing on these three bad guys. Right, so each of the heads. By the way, this three-headed Satan is a diabolical inverse of the Trinity. Right. Yeah? The, the, the very last canto of the Inferno, one of the most chilling lines, seems to me he encounters someone frozen in the pit of hell who he says... Are you dead? I thought I saw you back in life just a little bit ago. And he yeah. says, Oh no, my body's still up there and moving, but I've so committed myself to Satan that my soul is already down here. Yeah, that's a, that's a theologically interesting thought. <laughs> is that just basically like selling your soul to the devil? Is what he was? That's the idea. Uh, I don't know. Um, whatever it is, I think that it's incompatible with Catholic Catholicism or Christianity in general. I mean, uh, I know God's efficient, but judging people before they die, I mean, that's a bit much, right? I mean, assuming that he has free will and can repent, and I think that that's built into the psychology of Christianity, uh, what's he doing down here? Dante doesn't like him. In you go. Remember that in uh, the Sistine Chapel, um, in this people in hell are all people that Michelangelo doesn't like, including his landlord. <laughs> All right. So uh, again, you can have some liberties with this. Yeah. About the, the one, um, the one clergyman who complained about Ugolino. The, yeah, who complained about the, the nudity and said he's the only person whose genitals are hidden. Yeah. And not only are his genitals hidden, but there's a right. snake with two rings around him, which signifies that he's in Dante's second. He's in the pit of lust. There we go. Well done. Um, this is a kind of harrowing journey. Right? Um, it plays fast and loose with, with religion. Right? I mean, it's obviously central, but um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, I can see why the contemporary churchmen reading this thing, what is this? I mean, this is going to lead people astray, but the Italian uh, cardinals came back and said, this is really good poetry. We read it in the original, we really like this. So, I mean, it stays. <laughs> and they ultimately decided that it stays, even though, uh, uh, how can I put this? It's an innovative theology behind this, yeah? I'm just, like, really curious. Like, what was his 
inspiration for writing this? Was it like a dream, or did he really believe that this was like what hell was like? He claimed at various points in his life that he actually went on this journey spiritually. Uh, we, and there's no way that we can know for sure. Right. But there are some people who are says, I wonder if he's right. Yeah. This is the Pilgrim's Progress. The journey motif is back once again. All right. Your journey through life is a journey towards your ultimate niche in this gigantic hundred canto construction. Everybody belongs somewhere in there. And you get to decide it. Um, there's a great deal of imagination and sometimes uh, I'd have to call it heretical claims that get made in this, or assumptions that get made. Um, it's still a great piece of literature. All right? And it shows the medieval outlook in the sense that everything is hierarchical, but it also shows that we're having a new influx of these Greek and Roman ideas, which is why Romans get liberated to be his guides. Right? And then finally, it, I mean, so his guide here is Virgil, the next guide is going to be Cato, because right, he's in charge, and then Beatrice is going to lead him upwards into the Paradiso. In other words, his chaste love of his beloved Beatrice is what leads him upward. Think of the last line in Goethe's Faust, the eternal feminine leads us aloft. That's one way of looking at it. And Beatrice, like Laura for Petrarch, is a woman that's married to someone else that he's only seen once in his life. But it transfixed him. And her face became the image of uh, godliness leading, leading us upward toward a, a pure, chaste love that reflects the love of God. Remember what we, what we read in the symposium? All right. So what you see in, the, in your beloved is, in fact, a vision of eternity. Beatrice not only is Petrarchan, but she participates in a tradition that goes all the way back to the symposium. Yeah, all the way up to the symposium with a couple of digressions like Dido. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, babe. Got to go. <laughs> uh, okay. So, what do we got here? We got the structure of all of human life, and it's also the structure of all of human history. Right? We're all being judged by the same universal set of rules. Love is what animates the universe and what animates us, which is a very interesting thought. It's love that pushes the planets and stars around. So the problem of human life is to figure out how to love the right things. In other words, you need to make your love orderly. And you're allowed to love people or books or dogs or what have you, but you're not allowed to love them more than you love God. And all the things that you love must be arranged hierarchically in case there's ever any conflicting demands, you know what you're supposed to do. Okay. Now, this journey is set I mean, he writes it for, it takes him 12 or 15 years to write, but 
this journey is set on holy begins Holy Thursday. That's the dark night of the wood uh, of thirteen hundred. Right? No doubt, there's important numerology going on there. I just don't know how to unpack it. Right? Everything in this has lots of biblical numerology. Um, by the end, uh, we go through Easter Sunday and to the resurrection of God, and this is the so it's a, it's a it's a, a spiritual but also a symbolic temporal journey. Right? We're going to have to go through the betrayal and passion of Christ to get to the resurrection, and we are also going to have to engage in transformations in order to get to our resurrection. Okay. Now, the idea within the Inferno is that the punishment should fit the crime. So there's a definite correspondence between why you're in hell and the kind of torment you have to undergo. Soothsayers, for example, have their heads turned backward because they're not allowed to look in front of them anymore. Okay. Um, my sense is that saying sooth probably doesn't get you damned for all time. That, compared to the treacherous, doesn't seem like much of a problem. For that matter, to the apparitions. Uh, our understanding of good and evil are in some ways different from his. Right. For example, there's no place here for people that drive slow in the fast lane. <laughs> right, whereas clearly there has to be some such level. <laughs> it just hasn't been invented. No, be no, no, they don't have the wit to be treacherous. They're 90 years old and they think it's 1954 and they don't know how to get out of the fast lane. God, there's so many octogenarians allowed to, to drive around here. Drives me crazy. Right, I like to get where I'm going. Right. Yeah. Where does sloth Sloth. Oh, boy, that's a hard one. It's actually in wrath. In wrath. Okay, yeah. Um, it's related. Related. I don't know. In other words, look, um, there are some pointed, sensible questions that don't actually work out all that well. All right. Um, but it works for the poem. And besides, what can you do to the sloth except have them sit, you know, are they never allowed to lie down or you know, they always have to work? I don't know what to do with the sloth. It's not really poetic. Sloth and its opposite um, are not gripping to the imagination. So I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that if we were to organize the list of human transgressions, we might create an order different from this. Yeah. The really interesting thing to me is that for most, uh, most criminal justice is oriented around the idea that violence is the worst crime that you can do. Direct mm -hmm. violence against another person is the worst crime, uh, with the possible exception of treason to your country. But for Dante, fraud is worse than violence. Uh, lying to people, deceiving people, is worse than killing them. Okay, yeah, because you're going to kill them, but first you have to deceive them. All right. Whereas somebody that's violent, like say pa uh, Paolo's brother, um, there are at least some cases in which someone becomes overwhelmed with emotion, and we usually hold that not to be 
anything but murder, but we hold it to be a lesser degree of murder. All right, we don't get much, many of those gradations here. All right. Uh, also, remember that all of these sins are potentially recoverable. In other words, you can repent, right? but if you don't, you get the appropriate punishment for your sin. Right. Now, all of us need to work on our souls, and the next phase, the next 33 cantos, are going to allow us to do that. All right. We are going to be climbing the arduous Mount Purgatory. Now, remember that you have to imagine Dante's view of the world. At the very bottom of the world is the entrance to hell. When you work up, you're actually working in. When you get out of the ninth circle of hell, you're actually at the base, the other side of the world, of Mount uh, Penance or whatever, Mount Purgatory. You climb up there, well, Cato, uh, who is an only too obliging kind of prison guard, because he's a, uh, a Roman Stoic who really knows how to keep things orderly. Um, everybody's trudging up there, paying for their sins, you know? The, the, the view is that when Satan fell, he slammed into the earth, pushing all this dirt, creating the pit of hell, and the earth was pushed out the other side to form that purgatory. Okay. Well, you so, gotta like that. So how is hell the center of the earth? So the, he views the earth as a sphere. The pit goes all the way to the center of the earth, and it pushed out dirt on the other side to form the mouth of purgatory. Okay. And then, where, and then heaven is... Heaven, you... Then you thought. step off the earth altogether, then you enter the uh, various realms of the sky. Right. And these will correspond to the moon and the sun and the planets. Eventually we get to the Empyrean realm, where we the perfectly developed Christians. And then we step outside that, and we meet God himself. It turns out, though, that there's really not all that much to say about meeting God himself. It's not that it isn't a unique and a very worthwhile experience. It's just that we don't have words to talk about it. So what amazes me is that he's actually able to give us a hundredth canto at all. Right. Um, most people don't find it very satisfactory. Most people don't regard the Purgatorio and the Paradiso as nearly as moving or as interesting as the Inferno. And I think there's some justice in that, actually. But uh, this is the pessimistic view of human nature that we got in Augustine. Prior to getting an infusion of God's grace, you're, you're at the mercy of nature. If you're that one in a million that's really rational, we can give you a a suite up here in the first circle of hell. Apart from that, you're damned for all time and you deserve it. Right. Why? Well, because you chose evil. Suppose you didn't choose it. Well, uh, <laughs> well, if you didn't choose it, you were an infant or something, I guess we can send you to limbo. Yeah. There's a point in the, in the Paradiso where uh, Dante makes it clear that his view is that no one is in hell who does not deserve to be there. That's right. That's right. Um, that's certainly the case, right? And God is merciful, which is why we have a heavy population in, in purgatory, right? Uh, questions about this? This is important because, A, it's that epic tradition that I've been talking about. Well, it's back. And now, we don't just have Greek and Roman epics, we now have a Christian epic. A couple of centuries later, we're going to get another Christian epic. This is the Catholic epic. That'll be the Protestant epic. It's Paradise Lost. All right, and then we'll get the general uh, 
Western ethic, which is of dubious religiosity, uh, in Goethe's Faust. That's the last of the great uh, epics in, in the Western tradition. The reason why uh, Faust is uh, late 1700s and then finishes it's in the, when he's 80 um, in 1832. So it's about a 50-year hiatus between the first and second halves of Faust. But this Faust is not primarily religious, although it has some religious overtones. Uh, religion is less of a concern than uh, the journey of the soul in this world from despair to uh, activity that justifies human life. Right? It's a rather pagan, or it's a kind of a combination Christian-pagan uh, epic, and uh, it's the epic of Western man. In other words, I am the universal knower. All right, I am Faust. I'm really smart. You know? Are we going to read Milton and Faust? No, we're not doing Milton. Um, you should, but I just you know there's a little yeah, bit. But Faust, we are. Okay, good. Okay, that's important. Um, let me think. Uh, what we're going to get in. The reason why Faust gets written so late, why it's the last great Western epic, is because Germany uh, was destroyed by the wars of the Reformation. So it started the Enlightenment very late and started high, restarted high culture very late. And so you get um, Enlightenment figures like Kant who are contemporaries with Romantics like Goethe or Schiller. And uh, the epic of Faust is really interesting. Uh, it begins with this discussion in heaven between God and Satan, all right, which is stolen from the book of Job. All right. And uh, Satan comes down, and uh, I, I really like comparative devils. I, have, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. And uh, Goethe's Satan is actually quite an interesting fellow. He shows up first as a black dog. All right. Then he shows up as uh, Mephistopheles. And it's interesting. Uh, Faust asks him who he is, and he says, I am the spirit which negates. In other words, I am the no of the universe. <laughs> and that's actually quite a, bit, I mean, a very interesting uh, statement. And uh, what's very important is that in the second part, after we start with God and, and Satan in heaven, next we go to, to uh, Faust's study. And in his study, he is contemplating suicide. Why? Because he has studied all there is to study and knows all there is to know, and it isn't enough. In other words, Greece isn't going to help you. What and the Mephistopheles hasn't shown up yet. What saves him from committing suicide before the advent of Mephistopheles? It's Easter Sunday. The bells of Easter recall him to himself, right? which is actually a beautiful, powerful line saying, look, um, you know, I've done this Greek thing, and it's impressive, and the Romans are impressive too, but by itself, this is not enough. All right? If you want, in other words, if you want to avoid despair, you're going to have to go back to Jerusalem. Okay? That's the last great epic in the Western tradition, in the sense that epic is a written or an oral literary composition. Later on in the 20th century, we'll get a new set of epics. These epics are all going to be films. We change genre. Why? Because we have science 4.0. And so we're going to start doing epics in a different way. All right? The universal technological epic is 
2001, a space odyssey. It's the journey from us, from, uh, from being pre-rational to being rational, to getting beyond rationality. All right? uh, we start our rationality the way Cain and Abel started it, bone to the head. Remember that? Okay. Flips up. We find ourselves in the middle of the Cold War. In other words, this is where the development of weapons has left us. We're on the brink of destruction, but then we're going to get the star baby and all that Hegelian stuff. All right. Yeah? Just out of curiosity, is Lord of the Rings yep. in the same genre as the epic? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, I don't find it as moving or as powerful as things like Faust or Dante. Right. Um, I think it's a nice read, but I haven't read it since I was in high school. It doesn't interest me that much. And it, it becomes kind of predictable, and for that reason doesn't hold my attention all that long. Yeah. My sense of The Lord of the Rings is, first of all, I, I have a, a personal liking for it, but on a more objective level, uh, I think Tolkien is one of the few modern authors who actually has his roots in the classical tradition, mm -hmm. and as such, people are like, whoa, this is really good stuff. Okay. Partly because they just don't have exposure to the classical tradition. I'd be tempted to say that everyone is uh, immersed in the classical tradition. There are a small number like Tolkien that know it, yes. mm -hmm. right? and the rest of them are being pushed around by forces they don't recognize right. or understand. I should say that Tolkien is consciously yeah, part of that's the right. tradition. So he knows what he's doing, and uh, that's why you know Aslan seems so much like Jesus and stuff. But um, other writers are actually working in that tradition, but aren't fully conscious of it. The ones that I cover mostly are like Joyce, right? He knows that he's breaking away from Christianity. So uh, one of the arguments that I'll make is that epic is a surprisingly ubiquitous form. It gets destroyed, but then it comes back. It starts out as an oral tradition, then gets turned into a written tradition by Virgil. Then once it's a written tradition, um, it gets turned, uh, that continues on through Faust, all right? And after that, it becomes a visual tradition. Right? That's what motion pictures are, all right? Think of something like uh, Gone with the Wind. That's an epic of nostalgia for lost innocence for the old sound. Right. Uh, for those who identify as Southerners, this is their tradition and their diaspora. They are the Trojans of American history. And uh, same sort of thing with uh, uh, Lily Riefenstahl's Nazi uh, film, Triumph of the Will, about Hitler's greatness and these vast Nazi rallies which show you that the the folk are behind him, and um, that's an epic too. I might be tempted to say that late 19th century opera, particularly Wagner, um, is reaching towards epic, with, certainly with the ring cycle. So epic is gone, but it's also here to stay. Just keeps getting reformulated, yeah? Are there uh, 18th century novels which participate in this tradition? Yes, the best of them, the most obvious of them is uh, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe is the enlightenment everyman. And he and since ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and the city is like the man, his progress uh, on the island, which is nature, um, is based upon his belief in God and his 
rationality. And he steals from the ship a whole bunch of stuff, like hammers and nails and stuff. That's the Western tradition. So what he does is go through the entire Western tradition. Uh, starts out looking for food, eventually goes to agriculture, domesticates animals, eventually sees Friday, uh, kills most of the brown-skinned people on account of the fact that they're cannibals. Friday spontaneously wants to become his butler. So he says, okay, and then eventually we're going to get Europeans who are going to come, and among them is a Spaniard, and he's going to extend religious toleration. Okay, uh, what this is, is all of human history uh, pretending to be a novel about a castaway. Robinson Crusoe is all of humanity. This is the history of the world from the view of the Enlightenment. 1730, it's right on schedule. All right, here's the deal. Have some fun on spring break, but not too much fun. Right? I don't want some, somebody being called to bail you out. <laughs> that being said, uh, enjoy yourself, but do some reading. Reading is good for you, and I want you to get in the habit. Aristotle was right about habits. I'm in the habit of telling you to read all the time. And you should be in the habit of reading all the time. All right? Uh, you two gentlemen come up to my office. And uh, I will talk to you. We're going to read Purgatory and Paradiso. You can do the whole things if you want, but there are sections that I chose out. And I will see you in 10 days or so. Bye-bye. Right,